You are now listening to the new voice of reason, Down the Middle, a political podcast with Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation, a podcast about politics, current events, and culture through a lens of moderation, measuredness, and common ground. So sit back and prepare yourself for two guys who prefer intermittent, moderate change over revolution. Two guys who believe diversity of thought is our greatest strength. Are you prepared? Okay, here are your hosts, Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer. All right, listeners, welcome back to the pod. Season two, we're kicking it off with a cup of joe by Don. Bye, Don. Yep, a cup of Joe by Don post election special episode 22, season two. Jay, this felt like a really good uh, sort of starting point for a new yeah. season. Feels like a rebirth, even though things are just as crazy, if not crazier, than ever. Feels like a year since I've seen you. It really does. It feels like a it's long been like time. A week. It, yeah, I, I, I like I, I was telling you before, I didn't even remember how to, to start up my computer. Um, <laughs> it's been that long. But um, yeah, this is this has been one crazy uh, week and a half, two weeks. And right. uh, we can't wait to go over all of it with you guys. Felt like, like I said, felt like a good point to start season two. We got a big season coming up for you. And uh, we're excited to be here. Although I have one bone to pick, and that is that we told you guys to not do anything crazy while we were off, and the whole world has gone completely to crap. I know, you definitely didn't listen. Nobody listened. COVID is just crazy. I mean, COVID people are dying That's in terrifying. the streets. It's Yes, it, everything is insane. So uh, good job, America. Way to go, as always. On brand for 2020, though. Exactly. But we have a lot to get through uh, about the election. So let's go right in to our uh, episode here and uh, hit you with some Honest Abe's housekeeping hangout. When he growed up this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham, Abraham. All right, Jay, what do you got for us today? I got a couple of things for you. Okay. First, we want to thank all of you wonderful people for showing up for the live stream. We didn't know if we'd have a single viewer, but we got some texts and some photos of you guys watching on your big TVs, not even on your little computer, yep. but putting it up on the big TV. This, you know, we were the election hangout for a lot of you, and we really appreciate that. Yeah, a lot of people were actually saying, man, this is so much better than CNN. Yeah. And, and to that, I, I don't even know if that's a compliment. You're basically saying I'm better than Wolf Blitzer. Thank you. Yeah, Wolf. Wolf is a he, he's a bit of an overreactor. I think we, just, we kept it nice and calm. <laughs> Wolf, the resident CNN media robot. Exactly. But anyway, uh, yeah. Thank you. It was a fun experience. We're going to do it again sometimes, preferably not for another four years, but uh, yeah, maybe before then. We, we, you know, we did this as an experiment to see if events like this you guys would be into, and you are, and we'll do it more. If you want to watch what it was like and you couldn't be there, it's up on our Facebook, so check that out. Yep. Secondly, uh, thanks for the Discord comments. We got a few. We will address them on next week's show or the week yep. after. This week is going to be, this is a, a post-election special, so we are going to devote this entire special to an action, uh, election analysis and and everything that's happened since the election, all the insanity, it should be a lot of fun. But thank you. Keep the Discord coming. We want to hear from you. Exactly right. On that note, like I said, uh, we are not going to have any topics of the day this week. We're not going to have any kitschy segments. We're not going to make you laugh. We may make you cry. 
But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, so so don't expect that from this episode. This episode is all about the election. We're going to go from one topic to the next and shoot down them. So it's going to be a little bit of a, a of, of a different episode this week. Bear with us on that, and we hope you enjoy it. Yeah, it'll be good. I, we've we saw a lot of things going on in the media, a lot of things that we've been asked questions by our friends, mm-hmm. by our family, and we thought this would be a great time to sort of get together, talk through what's happening in the country, because I think it can be very confusing reading everything from all these various sources. They're all pulling in different directions. So we're going to try and square it away for you today. Yes, it is a confusing time, Jay. Next. So for a few months now, we've been telling you guys about our media venture, The Intermediary, that we will be officially launching by the end of the year. Uh, If you feel that major media networks are too biased one way or another. Spoiler alert, they are. Yes. Then we believe The Intermediary Network is for you. We will be committed to providing only fair and balanced content with a fearless devotion to intelligent, fact-check discourse that enlightens, educates, and empowers our audience by encouraging an open-minded, respect-and-tolerance approach to everything we do, we believe that we can bridge the gap between people with opposing beliefs. So we are very much looking forward to that, and we will keep you updated in the next few weeks. Jay, pitch our capitalist endeavors. We got t-shirts, we got baby onesies, we got mugs for all your family. Um, (laughs) As we move into the Christmas season, uh, we got stuff to buy. It it supports the podcast. Uh, So, you know, check it out, buy some stuff and wear your your shirts, indoctrinate your family and friends as you go visit them or as you see them on Zoom um, into moderate values. It's very important for the country and it's important for your family. We want them to be moderate too, trust me. These products have never been more important than they are now. We also have holiday season coming up, whether you celebrate celebrate Hanukkah, Christmas, or both, as I do. Chrismica. Yeah, this is a good opportunity to uh, have some stocking stuffers. Everyone likes a good stocking stuffer. I know I do. Although the whole entire country deserves coal right now. I hope we all wake <laughs> up to coal. <laughs> Everyone. Like, that would be, that would be the, best, the best thing, is if we all just woke up in just a pile of coal, but we're all in it together, and we're like, oh, shit, we effed up. We're all yeah. on the naughty list. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, One more thing before we move on to the bulk of the episode here. I wanted to give a shout out to my in-laws and friends of the pod. Oh, yeah. As some of you know, here in Los Angeles, kids haven't been able to go to school for the last eight months. And uh, it's been really hard. It's very, very much underreported by our our media. They practically never talk about the impact this is having on working families, especially two-income families. My in-laws who live in uh, New York, my my wife's uh, parents, they were gracious enough to drive out here in a pandemic, and they have been with us for the last two months. We were lucky enough to find them a place to stay, an apartment that was available in Santa Monica, and I have been dropping my kids off there for the last two months every morning at 8 a.m. and they have been sitting with them and bringing them through this online school process and putting full attention on them and it has been an incredible blessing for us that has allowed us to focus on work and also focus on the podcast and everything else we need to focus on. Unfortunately, the time has come and they are going back tomorrow. So it is a very sad time for us. I am uh, dreading having the kids back at home again and having to do sort of a half-assed um, proctoring session with them every day Professor where I try is. to balance work and everything else I do with, uh, with keeping them in line. So again, cannot thank them enough. It is important for all of you guys to thank the people who have helped you out in this pandemic. 
And uh, if you don't have in-laws that are willing to do something like that for you, I highly suggest you get some. <laughs> so run on down to the target. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, let's get into the episode. We're not even going to give you a theme song or anything. We're just going to go right into it, okay? Let's do it. We did a live stream on Tuesday, November 3rd, as as Jay mentioned, the night of the election. It was a total wing job, but we're happy to hear that a lot of you turned in and uh, are, sorry, tuned in and enjoyed. Uh, we had some good guests and remained pretty distracted the entire night <laughs> as we watched the elections, uh, the election results roll in. During the live stream, I started to personally develop a sort of sinking feeling that this election was turning out to be a repeat of 2016. It just seemed to be going in that direction. Uh, we cut our live stream at a certain point and I really felt like I had to concentrate on what was going on. It's sort of like when you're watching your favorite sports team in the championship and you say to yourself, oh, I'll just go out to the grill and throw some meat on. And then you get back and they've blown their lead and you think to yourself, if only I had not gone out to that damn grill and continued rooting, they'd still be ahead. This is my fault. So I started feeling that way towards the end of our live stream. Maybe some of you noticed. You needed to put your rally cap on. Yes, yes. Maybe some yeah. of you noticed, like I started to get more and more distracted. Yeah, you got a little and, yeah, I really wanted to put 100% of my focus on it. So we cut the live stream and the sinking feeling I was having did not dissipate one <laughs> iota. Uh, but, but it turns out that the sinking feeling was not only misguided on my mm -hmm. part, it was predicted by many election experts. Yeah, we didn't listen to them. Many well-informed election analysts for weeks leading up to the election were talking about the potential for what they were calling a red mirage. The idea was that on the night of the election, it would seem as if Trump was in the lead, but in the following days, that lead would slowly start to evaporate. So why is this? Well, because of the pandemic, this was a historic election and the fact that there were historic numbers of people voting by mail. Verifying mail-in ballots takes time. Every ballot has to be opened by hand, flattened out, run through a machine, fraudulently filled in. You know, <laughs> you know lots of things have to happen. Uh, I mean, never right? mind reach its destination. I mean, people, you yes. know, they've been, they were mailing these ballots in. Mm -hmm. If you're a procrastinator, like I tend to be sometimes, and yeah. I, I actually voted in person, but, you know, you mail this thing in, you fill it out, you mail it in on yep. November 2nd, it's not getting there until after November 3rd. Precisely, Jay. And when you're talking about millions and millions of ballots, that can take quite a bit of time. Sure. You add to the fact that many states weren't even allowed to start counting their mail-ins until the day of the election, which, by the way, was the way the Republicans wanted it. So they weren't even able to get a head start on the whole thing. Then we had Donald Trump for the last few months uh, or more, you know, encouraging all his supporters to vote in person and not to trust mail-ins. It was sort of a recipe for disaster. They forgot about that later on. Yeah, exactly. So according to Politico, now I'm going to be citing a lot of stuff in this, you know, I, I did my research, so there's a lot of stuff to cite in this episode. According to Politico, Democrats returned nearly three times as many mail-in ballots as Republicans did across the country. Now, it seems it seemed like a no-brainer to me, considering the fact that there's still a deadly widespread pandemic happening. But the fact is that Democrats in general are more likely to take the pandemic more seriously than Republicans. Mm -hmm. That's just the cold, hard truth. And were more eager to vote by mail rather than standing in line with thousands of other people, presumably some who have COVID, right? I mean, anywhere you go now, there's probably a lot of people who have COVID. Yes, but can we also state for the record once again that mm -hmm. Donald Trump told his base, 
not to vote by mail because he felt it was corrupt. I want to say that as many times as possible. Yeah, I know. And we will get to that for sure. But, you know, so for me, it was obvious to anyone with a functioning prefrontal cortex that the results of the uh, the results on the night of election wouldn't be accurate. That didn't stop Trump from declaring victory, however, that night, nor did it stop liberals around the country from needing to buy Depends. I, di- <laughs> I didn't actually go get that far, but I was close. You were I, close. I, did, I, I did not I sleep that it. night. I did yeah, not I sleep at all. It. I was sitting on the couch, you know, watching CNN, flipping to Fox, and it was just a nightmare. But yeah. like I said, uh, we were all warned about this, but it seems as though we all failed to heed those warnings, as is so often the case in life. So uh, by by the Wednesday e- by Wednesday evening, give or take, Biden had pulled ahead in several states that he needed to win. So let's go through some of those states. The big ones are Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, Nevada, Michigan, and Arizona. Currently, as of today, as of right now, and today is Thursday, Biden is ahead 12,000 votes in Arizona, 14,000 in Georgia, 21,000 in uh, Wisconsin, 37,000 in Nevada, 52,000 in Pennsylvania, and 146,000 in Michigan. Uh, it is not particularly close. Uh, now, you know, in terms of uh, of the mail-in ballots and how that was all affected, you know, why this all happened later after the election, the exact scenario that people were painting, the red mirage thing. If you take states like Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. very red state, but the big blue area is Philadelphia County, where all the mail-in ballots came from. Those are going to take time. Same thing in Georgia, where the big blue county is where Atlanta is. Same thing in Nevada, very red state with Las that Vegas. big blue Las Vegas County that took a long time in Nevada's Nevada just doesn't have their stuff together. Let's just say that Michigan, same thing with Detroit and even in Arizona, which has been a Republican stronghold for a very long time, even in Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is. Uh, Biden is ahead now in Maricopa County, what I think by 15,000 points yeah. or something. So, uh, or 15,000 votes rather. So it's, uh, it, it really wasn't particularly close once all the votes were counted. So we went up and down and back and forth day after day until Saturday morning when CNN and ABC and Fox all called the race for president-elect Joe Biden. Not so fast, Jay. We have a lot more to discuss. It's not that cut and dry, is it? No, it is certainly not. So uh, it was an exciting moment and certainly something unprecedented because we've never had to wait this long. At, at this very moment, as we record this podcast on Thursday, it is presumed that Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States of America. And we won't sit here and detail every change that occurred in every state and all the hand-wringing over the past week you know, or so, because you've likely been watching it happen in real time on your television. And we don't, you know, it was a traumatic experience. We don't want to relive it. I don't want to do it again. What we do want to do, though, is is talk about the actual results and what they meant. Mm-hmm. First, a word about the polls. OK, right, we got to talk about the polls first. OK, yeah. The night of the election, the big story from conservative media was that the polls were incredibly off, so off that some of them may have been designed to be, quote, suppression polls. Now, what is what that means is the idea that the the pollsters were skewing the numbers in Joe Biden's favor so that if there's a guy eating Wendy's on a couch in Arizona, he's think, do, do they have Wendy's in Arizona? 
They got all the fast foods in Arizona. Okay, okay. You know, he might, it's election night. He's looking at the polls and saying, eh, Biden's going to win this thing. I'm going to keep eating my Wendy's. I'm not voting this year. There's no evidence of this happening. And furthermore, as we've talked about before, pollsters have a real incentive to get it right here. They don't want to get it wrong. It's called credibility. That's their business. So the idea that they were suppression polls is silly. There's it's completely unfounded. He was getting pretty, pretty sweaty, pretty schwitzy, though, that night. uh, Yeah, Nate. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I'm going to get to Nate in a minute here. So the pollsters were were getting destroyed for the next few days, which, again, was silly because it became abundantly clear uh, that we didn't have. all the data in yet. So now nearly 10 days after the election, it's only been 10 days, geez, feels like 10 years. Um, Yeah, as the data has come in, the polls were still off substantially, but nowhere near what a lot of people were saying. Now, Nate Nate Silver, as Jay just mentioned, from 538, who analyzes all these polls, he's sort of the top analyst in the country. He has been ripping his hair out, encouraging <laughs> everyone to stop doing half-ass analysis until all the numbers are in, because the analysis on elections like this can take months or even years to complete. It takes a long time to break everything down. And, you know, poor Nate Silver, because he took so much crap in 2016 for getting the polls wrong when he didn't. And he was like, I said, it was a 35% chance. Then he took crap from the liberals the last three years, basically, like Trump's not going to win again, right? And he's like, I'm not your therapist. And now he's taking crap because they're, you know, everyone's basically saying, Nate Silver, you got to learn to learn to code because you're obviously terrible at your job, right? And he's like, no. It's a very scary situation for him. If he really got this wrong, then yeah. forget about it. You know, right, he's right. Done. And, and by the way, he's not even a pollster. He just analyzes, he analyzes the polls. So, so he's sort of like, what are you guys looking at me for? But okay. But <laughs> But with that said, here is what we know definitively about the election. Now, this yep. is the this is the interesting stuff, Jay. The Democrats basically, I'm sorry to say, all you liberals out there, got skunked. Okay, mm-hmm. the real clear politics uh, average had Trump down nine points in Florida before the election. Trump ended up winning Florida by three points, so yeah. not particularly close. Nope. Florida was really the one swing state that Biden was supposed to win, and it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump got an outsized portion of both the Jewish vote in Florida and the Cuban vote. Over fifty percent of the Cuban vote voted yeah. for Trump, which is crazy. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, uh, the Senate results were the most disappointing for Democrats. The polls in the Senate races were off pretty substantially. For instance, Cal Cunningham in North Carolina was supposed to beat the Republican Tom Tillis. That didn't happen. The polls were saying that Jamie Harrison in South Carolina was within striking distance of uh, incumbent Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. That was completely wrong. Graham won by a very wide margin, about 13 points. Jeez. Amy McGrath, who was running against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, got absolutely absolutely destroyed, wasn't even close. Uh, We were told by the polls that Joni Ernst in Iowa, Republican in Iowa, was down significantly. She ended up blowing out her competitor, Teresa Greenfield. So Democrats picked up a seat in Arizona with Mark Kelly beating out Martha McSally. Martha McSally, who is now just a a two-time loser for the- The worst politician, I think, in the history of Arizona. Yeah, yeah, very, very very bad. Nobody likes her, unfortunately, for the the Republicans, unfortunately. Uh, Democrats won a seat in Colorado, with John yep. Hickenlooper beating out Cory Gardner. Shout out to my parents who live in, in uh, Colorado and we're very concerned about that. And that happened. Uh, but all of these races were supposed to be very close or by polling data were favoring the Democrats. Only two of them worked out that way. Yeah. So the Democrats dropped $200 million, Jay trying to win these seats, especially a large number in South Carolina at, with Lindsey Graham 
And Kentucky with Mitch McConnell, they launched a whole campaign called Get Mitch or Die Trying, which I thought was a great name. Um, they dropped $100 million on that campaign. Enormous Oof. waste of money. Lindsey yeah. Graham tweeted out something about how it was like the worst return of investment in American political history, which <laughs> he's probably, and, probably and, right. And in the middle of a pandemic when that in money middle, could go yeah. to actual you know issues. Yeah, that money's just gone. It's down the drain. $200 million, right? So even Yeah, even Susan Collins, a Republican senator in Maine, a very moderate Republican senator mm-hmm. in Maine, kept her seat, which she was widely predicted to lose. Uh, beyond that, progressive candidates got killed pretty badly across the country in House races. In all, Republicans picked up six House seats and will likely retain the Senate, which we'll get to in a minute. So, Jay, tell us where the Senate stands right now with the runoffs and everything that's going on with that. So with yesterday's Republican victory in Alaska and Senator Dan Sullivan keeping his seat as expected, the balance of power in the Senate is left up to two January 5th runoff elections in Georgia. As of the time of this recording, the Republicans have 50 seats, the Democrats 48, the GOP managing to hold on to all but two of the roughly dozen seats that were thought to be competitive, as Riz just mentioned, and even flipped one seat held by a Democrat. This brings us to Georgia, where if the Republicans win even just one of these races, they will maintain control of the Senate. The Dems need to win both in order to create a 50-50 tie in the Senate, with Vice President-elect Harris casting the tie-breaking votes to carry out the legislative agenda. Now, for those that do not know, a runoff election is essentially a rematch, held when neither of the candidates meet the criteria for winning, which under Georgia law is a majority of the vote. Yeah, over 50%. Right? Exactly. If a yeah. candidate doesn't break 50%, the top two candidates voted most for face-off again in a runoff election. It's important to note that since the 1990s, Democrats have only won one of seven statewide runoffs in general or special elections. Now, you might be wondering how Georgia's two Senate seats could be up for re-election at the same time, which is typically prevented by a staggered election schedule. Well, wonder no more, as I shall tell mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Senator David Perdue, the incumbent Republican, was facing a normal re-election race for the seat he'd won in 2014. Additionally, last year, Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson retired from his seat due to health issues. Senator Kelly Loeffler, who was appointed to his seat, is facing a special election to serve out the remainder of his term, which ends in 2022. And as neither candidate nor their challengers garnered at least 50 percent of the vote, as we said, both of these elections are headed to the runoff. Now, in the first race, Senator Perdue fell just short of the majority he needed to be reelected to his seat against Democrat John Ossoff and Senator Loeffler, the same facing Democrat, the Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock. How's that for a name? By the way, before you go on, I have to throw in vote your ass off, which I always yeah. thought was a, yeah, it was was a really a, great slogan. Yeah, great slogan. OK, keep yeah, going. need that bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so Georgia plans to hold three weeks of early voting, including a vote by mail, of course, an in-person vote on January 5th. These are very special circumstances with both seats up for grabs and most importantly, the majority ship in the Senate. So it's expected that both parties will pour all available resources into the runoffs. The stakes are literally as high as it gets, and it is no doubt that these will be hotly contested races. Yeah. Uh, So, Jay, uh, from what I've heard from just both conservative and liberal pundits, it's very unlikely that the Democratic candidate will take either of these seats. Right. Have you heard the same thing? I've heard the same thing. um, And they need both of them to even, you know, have uh, a chance of of their legislative agenda being pushed through in the Senate. So, uh, you know, the, the chances of them winning both are very, 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 very slim. Right. Okay. And the betting odds, I mean, the betting markets are are saying that the the Republicans are going to retain the Senate, yep. which is uh, very disappointing for Democrats because they were supposed to. I mean, five thirty eight was giving the Democrats an eighty five percent chance of winning back the Senate. Yeah. So that's that's a huge, huge, huge blow. But we'll get to that. So here's the crazy stuff. Okay. 
Now, first, this was a record turnout year. Greatest turnout in American history. That's very good for democracy. Yay, democracy. Okay, more Ah. people voting. Yes. Ah. Uh, More people voting is always good for the country. Uh, There has always been a myth, however, that big turnout helps the Democrats. This was proven false. Maybe it helped them in the presidential Presidential, race, but otherwise it really didn't. Uh, People were fired up on both sides. And the idea that if Democrats just show up, they're always going to win, not necessarily true. Another myth that was busted in this election cycle was the idea that if Democrats just sort of pander to their woke base and blame everything on racism and treat every person in America like they're part of a demographic group rather than like an individual, that this would sail them to victory. This, of course, was proven false pretty unanimously. So I want to get to some exit data here that that sort of proves that. Okay, Okay. so this is all very interesting stuff. So listen up. Trump won 7% of the black vote in 2016. In 2020, he won 15% of the black vote, more than doubling his 2016 number. Trump won 32% of the nationwide Hispanic vote, uh, which is insane, 32%, okay? In the state of Texas, Trump won 45% of the Hispanic vote. There was a, there was a one Hispanic county, a, a, a Hispanic majority county, I think it's Bixar or something in Texas, I, I don't quote me on the name there, where it, over 50% of the Hispanic vote went to Trump, which again is just crazy. Yeah, Hasn't happened since the 1950s. Trump won 31% of the nationwide Asian vote. 31%. That's wow. a lot of people, okay? Yep. Higher than any Republican since Ronald Reagan. The only predictable measure from this election is that Trump lost suburban women by 13 points. So, what is this data telling us? Well, to be honest, I think this is a dagger to the heart of white wokeness. Yep. And now that the election is over, I'm going to say what I've always thought for a long time now. Now, I think... I've always tried to be fair and impartial on this show, but subconsciously, because I really wanted Biden to win this election, subconsciously, I think I didn't want to say everything that was on my mind because I didn't want to inadvertently get someone to vote for Trump, all right, who listens to this show. I'm going to admit that. I'm going to be honest here. But now that the election is over, I'm going to say what I want, because for too long, white rich Democrats have been operating under the assumption that if they sort of pat minority communities on their head and call every Republican a racist and support causes that they assumed were popular among minority communities, like defunding the police or reparations for slavery, that this would secure that vote. And it's not working. They're losing that part of their base and they're losing it rapidly. And the fact that they're losing it to Donald Trump should be a tremendous wake-up call to Democratic politicians everywhere, okay? So yeah, I was sort of an anecdotal story here, but I was was overhearing a conversation the other day. I was picking up food at at a local restaurant here, Mm -hmm. and uh, there were two other people there, and they were waiting for their food as well. It was an older black man and a white lady. And the white lady goes, you know, they were talking about the election and she says something like, you know, I don't see how anyone could vote for Trump after how racist he's been. And the black guy kind of looked at her and like he he kind of smirked a little bit and he was like, Democrats think everything is racist. We stopped buying into that years ago. Okay, yeah. And and, and again, that's an anecdotal story. But but I think that's a very important point here. The Democrats are the boy who cried racist. And when you start labeling simple policy disagreements as overt American racism, people start to tune out after a while. I've been saying this for a while. I do not like or appreciate the Donald Trump is Hitler comparison because it's over the top and it's counterproductive. James Clyburn, who is who is a very respected Democrat, 
who helped Biden get elected, by the way, uh, you know, he's used this Hitler comparison a lot. He just did it the other day. You know, when when Trump and the administration come to my house and tattoo my arm as, <laughs> you know, put a number, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm number 8,333 liberal, and then they ship me to Montana and then make me take complain. my clothes up. That, then I, that, then I'll, uh, you know, I'll make those comparisons. But until mm -hmm. then, I think it's over the top. It's ridiculous. I mean, do you agree, Jay? I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. It's a far cry. Yes. And that these this has been sort of, I think, one of the downfalls of the Democratic Party, this this massive shift to identity politics that isn't bringing new people on. It's fact it's in fact just making minorities leave, because when you say something all the time and those things don't necessarily pan out or people don't see them in their everyday lives, they start mm -hmm. thinking that you're full of it. I, and I, I think the Democrats should feel lucky that this happened in an election year. Yeah. This could have been something that had really taken had taken over the party in a bigger way right. and been more pervasive mm -hmm. and been over a longer period of time so yeah. that this became the party and then they'd be screwed for a very long time. The fact right. that they got the results of what they're doing, the sort of marketing wrong in such a short period of time mm -hmm. that now they can course correct, hopefully, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, they should consider themselves very lucky for that. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And And, you know, Beyond that, uh, conservative commentator Matt Walsh, Christian conservative conservative commentator from uh, the Daily Wire, uh, he he tweeted out something, and I don't usually agree with everything Matt Walsh says, but I thought this was on point. He tweeted uh, something I, I I thought was pretty insightful. He said Democrats could have legally won a landslide victory and the Senate if they'd backed the police instead of mm -hmm. the rioters, promoted yep. patriotism, and dialed it back just a few notches on the far left LGBTQ stuff. No sane human on earth thinks eight-year-olds should choose their gender. Literally all they had to do was say, police aren't racist serial killers, America is a great country and we should respect the flag, and little boys shouldn't be dressed up like girls. Minimal levels of sanity is all they needed to display and they couldn't do it. And I 100% agree with that. Here's the thing. The defund the police, most Americans are not on board with defund the police. And the sec that slogan could be the most damaging slogan to a demo to an election and uh, to either party in yeah. an election in American history. Absolutely. I think they would have won the Senate had it not been for that. I think a lot of people didn't like Trump, but were just like, I don't I, I, you know, I don't have a problem with police. Plus, think about the hundreds of thousands of people that are family members of police mm -hmm. officers that have sure. kids that are police officers right you know yeah. and then beyond that when you imply that america is just rooted in racism and is is pathologically racist and there's no getting out of it a lot of people perceive that as meaning that you don't think the country is great and i don't think that's that's what i think matt walsh was saying here by by promote patriotism. I don't think most people think this is is a bad country, that we are bad people, you know, and the Democrats have been sort of teetering that line and 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 it's part of the narrative. It's it's become degree. part mm -hmm. to a certain extent when you call everything racist and everything's rooted in this sort of evil ideology. Mm -hmm. Well, then you're implying that the country isn't great. And I think a lot of people just aren't on board with that. And then also, I completely agree with the with, the, you know, all these celebrities that are letting their kids choose their own gender. I am a liberal. You're not going to find anyone who is more supportive of the LGBTQ community than me. However, with that said, my kid, I, I, my son has an older sister. When he was three years old, he would like sometimes come out with his dress, with her dresses on. And I would be like, you know, 
We don't do boys that. don't wear dresses, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. go put on boy clothes because I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that Democrats have felt or liberals have felt sort of bullied that they have to be okay with that kind of yeah. thing. And you don't have to be. You can no. still call yourself a liberal and say, well, I like it. I want my boy to act like a boy. I want my girl. to." And, and when my son is an adult, if he wants to wear dresses then, then that's a whole different story, right? Yep. No, no, completely. And, and the problem is, is that people are failing to admit to the fact that there is science. Mm-hmm. We haven't spoken about this a lot on this show, but I'm mm-hmm. happy to. There is science on the other side of the, this issue that mm-hmm. speaks to people who adopt di- a different gender, that there is a psychological condition behind it. There's, there, there is science there. So if people want to read about it, feel free to Google it. It does exist. Yeah. And, w- and we could talk about that on, on another episode yeah, for absolutely. sure. You know, but like, I, you know, I am a libertarian leaning liberal. Mm-hmm. And so I have always made the case yeah, well, that whoever you want to be. Is, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah. That's fine with me. But what I am saying is that I think there's there's societal pressure from Hollywood and, you know, people that in the media sort of lionize mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. these these well-known people who decide to do sort of an alt parenting technique by letting their kids choose their gender. And I think there's a lot of people in the middle of the country who might be Democrats who are just like, yeah, I'm not on board with that. Like, I'm not cool with that. This this could be an area and a time and place where the coolness of being a Democrat and the youngness of being Mm -hmm. a Democrat could really hurt the party. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. No, we'll talk about that more in this episode. Yeah, Matt, so, Matt Walsh, by the way, the Ringo star of the Daily Wire. <laughs> definitely the Ringo star. Yeah, very good. So the intelligentsia is frustrated trying to find out how a guy like Trump in a political party like the Republicans is resonating with minorities. So I was listening to an interview last week with Victor Davis Hanson. He is a very conservative pundit and historian. He comes on Fox a good deal. He writes a column in the Washington Examiner. And I generally disagree with the majority of his ideas, but he was asked to opine on why he thinks Trump is getting minorities to vote Republican for the first time since the 1950s. And I think he gave an answer that is very insightful. So in this answer, he's talk, he, he's, he's asked why he thinks this is. He's talking about how he thinks Trump, of all people, has made inroads into minority communities. This is what that sounded like. He got on the idea that these very wealthy, upscale, progressive liberals, the university professor, the Hollywood entertainer, the media anchor person, people don't like them. They don't like their comportment. They don't like their accent. They don't like their condescending manner. And Trump made fun of them. And that really resonated with minorities who don't like them either. But they felt that they were indebted to them or they had to, in a quid pro quo fashion, vote for them. But when you talk to people and they see Trump, I think Jason Woodlock said on national TV, a lot of black young men like Trump because he doesn't care and he, he, he has a certain image. I guess it was a machismo image. But that's not so much my point. My point is that that nasal sounding pajama boy, life of Julia elite, Trump doesn't like and he's he he attacks them. He makes fun of them. And a lot of minority people say, you know what? I don't want to be told what to do by those guys anymore. They're just antithetical to my religion. They're antithetical to my family. They're antithetical to what I do in my own life. And they never, they've never, you know, they've never overhauled a car. They've never been in a bad situation. They don't know how people live. And I'm going to listen to those guys. And he hit on that. And they thought it would be impossible because they kept saying he's a billionaire. It wasn't a matter of money. It was a matter of attitude and authenticity. 
they're in a monastery of the mind right now. If you talk to these guys, and I'm, I'm I live a, a, among them, and they're in my family. They just don't want to hear LeBron James. They don't turn on the NBA. They don't go to the movies. They don't want to see another Hollywood movie. They don't want to see a sitcom anymore. They're just it's it, they're just done with it. They're done with the NFL's halftime show. They don't want to see it. Uh, they're tuning out on a lot of institutionals. They don't watch the Oscars. The Emmys are a joke. And so that kind of don't tread on me, I don't give a damn anymore, That's a, it can be a very dangerous attitude, and somebody has to harness it. Trump harnessed it. There's an opportunity here to recalibrate not only race in America, but the entire Republican Party is the party of the middle class, of minorities, uh, fighting against a party that of the very wealthy and the very poor. And that's what the Democratic Party is. Very wealthy, very poor. Okay, so now that hit on a couple of things we should unpack very quickly. Mm -hmm. So first, I think that Victor Davis Hanson there hits on uh, the number one thing that liberals just cannot wrap their heads around when it comes to Trump. You'll hear them say all the time, how can these working class people love this guy so much? He's sh on gold toilets you know they're uh, they're always talking about the gold toilets the gold toilets ha, ha, you know his life is so different than any kind that any kind of life these people can imagine mm -hmm. but that's the whole thing you know you think bill gates or jeff bezos has gold toilets in their homes of course not because it's tacky trump is sort of like a a modern day jed clampett you know from the <laughs> beverly hillbillies you know it, he is an anti-elitist elite yeah. Which to a working class guy who does a manual labor job for a living, you know, it's sort of the embodiment of the American dream. And in all the ways that Bill Gates or people like that would never see any of these people, Trump has this weird, innate instinct and skill to make these people feel like he's seeing them. He's like one of them, but with like a, a, like a lot more money. Right, exactly. And Trump talks down to the actual elite, you know, mm -hmm. the media elite, the corporate elite, the cultural yeah. elite, and all of those elites hate him because he's sort of like a very cheap version of them. I, I came up with this analogy and I thought, man, this is perfect. Why am I only coming up with this now? He is, Trump is Rodney Dangerfield's character in Caddyshack. <laughs> for, for those who haven't seen Caddyshack, Amazing. you should go back and watch it because the whole thing is that he's rich, but he's classless. Mm -hmm. So he he's in this country club and Rodney Dangerfield has more money than anyone there, but he's not into this sort of caviar cigar, uh, you know, country club atmosphere. And he turns the whole thing on its head and makes everyone feel really uncomfortable. That's sort of what Trump is. I think a lot of minority working class people are saying like, do I love this Trump guy? No, but at least I don't feel like he's talking down to me like Nancy Pelosi is when she's eating her designer ice cream in front of her $30,000 sub-zero refrigerator in San Francisco. It's like those people I can't relate to at all. I think that's that's a really interesting thing to think about and why Trump is connecting with minorities. Because, I mean, who who would have thought, right? At some point in a, later on, we should talk about what he did towards the end of elec the election mm -hmm. to promote this idea, the, the partnership with Lil Wayne, the platinum plan. Right. He, did a, he did a lot at the end of, of running to right. really adhere himself to the, the black community. Right. You know, it's funny. I heard this. Someone was was giving this analysis that like if you go back to the 80s and 90s, like before Trump was in um, politics, mm -hmm. like he was the subject. His name came up in like thousands of rap songs. He was oh, sure. idolized yeah, in the yeah. black community. Right. That's true. And it wasn't until he became a politician that all of a sudden he was racist and bad. Right. Yeah. But but he was, you know. 
I think a lot of those rappers, like Ice Cube, the ones who came out for Trump, a lot of them were like, I always, I, I never had a thing against Trump, right? And, you know, the other guys want to raise my taxes. And those guys are all about their money. They rap about money. Well, you want right? to talk about the gold the gold toilet. I can guarantee you some of these okay. successful yeah. rappers have a gold toilet. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's something they aspired to. Yes. But anyway, the next thing is is this. Okay, according to the exit polls, the number one group that Trump lost in this election was white college educated males who make over 150k a year. Okay, so when I when I heard that, I I immediately thought of uh a perfect sort of um person for for this demographic that I could bring up here would be our editor-in-chief, Clay Cogman, who's also been a contributor to the show. I think he fits perfectly into that mold. If Mm -hmm. if you've heard our shows with Clay, maybe you saw him on our live stream. He was one of our guests. Uh, Clay is from a very Republican family, very conservative family. He voted Republican his entire life, but he is very highly educated. He has a law degree. He makes a very good living. He is a professional and he he is the kind of person that walked away from the Republican Party in the wake of Trump and have been becoming Democrats. Mm -hmm. And he told me himself he works with attorneys all over the country. He didn't know one that was supporting Trump. You know, there's there is there is definitely an educational and an income level uh, divide here that is happening. So, you know, outside of a a very small percentage of people at the very top of the income scale, the Republicans have lost their wealthy capitalist base. Yeah. Okay. now that's not good for them. Uh, But most of the wealth in this country has gone to the Democrats. And here's the very, very interesting statistic from the exit poll, Jay. This one blew my mind. Okay. According to NBC, people who do a manual labor job for a living are voting Republican at around 74 percent. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Stunning. That's incre- incredible, but even more incredible. People who work in an office mm-hmm. are voting Democrat about 78% of the time. Unbelievable. Okay? Yeah. Th- that is the divide. And this brings me to the main point I want to make here. What this election highlighted more than any other election is the starkest divide between rural and urban America in the history of our country. Sure. The Republicans have become the party of the working middle class. Okay, And that's good for them. That mm-hmm. is good for them. The Democrats have become the party of the wealthy and mostly coastal elites. And the Democrats have still been able to win elections because along with the wealthy and mostly coastal elites, they were also getting that 95% of the minority community vote. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying, however, is that I think the minority communities are slowly but surely leaving the Democratic Party. And if this trend that we saw here in 2020 continues on, the Dems are in serious trouble. Yeah, it's 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 interesting that, that, you know, you don't consider that the parties could sort of flip like this. But Mm -hmm. you look at when Lincoln was a Republican and the Republican Party freed the slaves and (laughs) had since flipped. I mean, you know, it happens over a long period of time. But there is a flip happening and it, oh, it, it can be marked by statistics. And like Victor Davis Hanson was saying in that clip, the, the Republicans have a unique opportunity here to really rebrand themselves yeah. as the party of the middle class for all races, mm-hmm. you know, for all races, right? Um, and I'll tell you, the the Democrats cannot win elections with majorities in the small corridors between Seattle and San Diego and Boston to D.C. No, it's not enough. No, it's not enough. And it's not just that. I mean, if you take a state like Kentucky, mm-hmm. Kentucky's a deeply red state. OK, yeah. if you look at the map of Kentucky yeah. from this election. It's completely red, except for this tiny little dot 
right where Louisville, Louisville. is. Okay, and and Louisville it, that that so that's that one little blue dot. And it's it, I think a lot of people are thinking, well, that's where the urban vote is. You know, that's where the minorities live. And yes, that is true. But the minorities are walking away from the Democrats. Yes. What's more so happening is that that's where the professionals live. Mm-hmm. That's where the lawyers and the business people and the tax people and all you know. If you're a professional in the state of Kentucky, you probably live in in, in Louisville. Louisville. But it's you interesting. Know, it's it's yeah. evidence if you do the same boogie with any of those swing states that we mentioned yeah. earlier. If you just mm-hmm. go to the, you type electoral map into Google, AP's yeah. map will come up and it'll let you go state by state. Yep. Click on any of these swing states, you see exactly that. I mean, we, we sort of in we referenced state. it earlier. In every state, the major cities Texas. are blue. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. else, the surrounding counties are red. Right. And, and that even holds true in our deeply blue state in California. Yeah, the only reason California is such a blue state is because it has six major metropolitan areas in it yeah. that are all deeply, deeply blue with a lot of people with a lot of money and also minorities. Mm-hmm. But when you go out, even 45, I have friends who live up in Thousand Oaks, which is sure. 45 minutes outside of L.A. There's Trump signs all over the place. I, when on my yeah. drive to Oakland, mm-hmm. all yeah. Trump. Oh, all yeah. farmland, all Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, when you get out of those big cities, mm-hmm. that's what you get. Yeah. Um, but on top of what we just went through, there is one piece of data that came out of this election that I find the most telling. Okay. Uh, and it's for the last 50 or 60 years, people have generally voted party line down ballot, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you were a Republican, you voted for all Republican candidates and vice right. versa. Now, according to RCP, Real Clear Politics, this election saw a record number up to 25% of voters splitting the ticket, voting for Biden for president and Republicans down ballot. Wow. And that and that brings us, Jay, to what the mandate of this election is. Because yeah. I think that voting for Biden and then voting for Republicans down ballot mm-hmm. is the voters' way of compromising. I completely you know, agree. It's, it's saying, I don't like Trump but I don't like the Democrats either. Mm -hmm. And I don't want a situation where they have total control of the government. I mean, what do you say to that? I think it was completely, completely clear. And I'm excited about it, as I, as you, you may have um, put two and two together from our yep. last episode to this episode. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is exactly the mandate that, that comes from this, uh, these election results. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing that people were willing to do that. I think it says a lot about Trump and how people were, there was Trump exhaustion. Yeah. But they're telling the country to slow down. And I right. think that that's a good thing. I think we right. could use a little gridlock. This is a perfect moment for uh, two things could be true at once. True thing number one, Trump was a deeply divisive president that a lot yep. of people did not like. Mm-hmm. True thing number two, people aren't too fond of the Democrats either at yeah. this very moment in history. Sure, that seems you know? very evident. And, yeah. and, and that is evident by, by you know, what we're seeing in these exit polls and how this election is panning out. Yeah, I mean, it's also based on a decision by the Democrats, as we've said right now, it's a squad of four people and Bernie in a corner screaming. Yep. But the Democrats have decided to give them that much ox- oxygen. Yeah. And mm-hmm. perhaps that was a very bad idea. Yeah, and we're going to get all to that in a, in a few minutes here. But, you know, one more thing. Or an hour. Yeah. <laughs> one more thing before we move on to Trump and all the idiocy. There's a very good article in Slate.com today by Mary Harris uh, entitled, Democrats have a much bigger problem than the Senate or the Electoral College. It's the state houses, stupid. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to go into detail uh, of the entire piece. Uh, I encourage you all to read it. You could Google it and find it very easily. But basically, it outlines that the biggest thing that the Democrats lost in this election is actually the state legislatures. They did not take a single state house in this country. And this will allow the GOP to gerrymander or redistrict their electoral map 
which will make it very hard for Democrat for Democrats to accumulate significant power over the next decade. State legislatures are an, the important, they're, they're an important thing that is very often underreported. And eventually we'll talk more about gerrymandering on the show. But in the meantime, you should read that article. The Democrats lost a lot. They absolutely did. And uh, one final thing I want mm-hmm. to say about all of this before we move on. Okay. Uh, John Stanton, who was a formerly a reporter for BuzzFeed, he tweeted something that I personally found profound. He said, quote, so many people spending so much energy trying to convince everyone else that they can draw long-term conclusions about an election during a brutal pandemic that involved a literal fascist maniac who was willing to burn the world down to feel better about himself. Now, the fascist maniac part, whatever. But the part that I most certainly agree with is that this is one of the most unique times in American history between the pandemic and the economy and Trumpism and everything surrounding that. You know, perhaps all of the stats that we just went through on this podcast don't mean anything. (laughs) Maybe no narratives can be drawn from this and that it's just an outlier fluke situation and there are no long term effects. Who knows? No, see in two years. Yeah, see in two years, see in four years. You know, (laughs) we just don't know because it is such a unique time, especially with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. All right, moving on. Yeah, let's get to some of the conspiracy theories. So, As you may have heard, unless you were living under a rock, uh, Trump refused to concede this election. He hasn't conceded yet. Now, we all knew this would happen. I mean, mean, he telegraphed the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, my prediction is that he's going to be dragged out of there by the Secret Service. This is no surprise to me. I mean, we'll see. We're hearing now from inside the uh, the the campaign and the you know the inside people in the White House that he's starting to come to terms with the fact that he lost, but he's trying to. Uh, remain, you know, keep up hope for his base. But, um, you know, the bottom line is that no one should act surprised over what's happening. No. Uh, we, we we knew that this, he literally said this was going to happen. I mean, everything with Trump is always on page one of the newspaper. You don't have to go, there's no fine print. Yeah, yeah. he announces <laughs> He announces it. everything. So just like if you wanted to see how he was going to be as, as president, if you had read the art of the deal, wouldn't yeah. be surprised about anything. Nothing surprising, exactly. So we have to talk a little bit about the voter fraud allegations. So sure. just to before we, we we let Jay sort of tell tell you the the stuff that's going on with the court cases and everything, we should recap. But we did an entire episode about, or, or I should say, a topic of the day a few months ago. What was it? A few months ago or a few weeks ago? I don't Who know knows at this point. point? Who knows? But uh, we did. It was called uh, "Oh My Pod, It's Voter Fraud." Yeah. Oh my pod, it's voter fraud. Yeah. You should go back and listen to that. The truth is that when you have when you're in a country with 150 million people who are casting ballots, um, of course, there's going to be irregularities. Of course, yes. there's going to be occasional instances of fraud. But the whole point was that there's there has never been systemic, widespread fraud that has affected the outcome of an election. It's Correct. never it's happened. Completely minuscule. Right. Yeah. It's very, it's very, very minuscule. But there are, you know things here and there that come up and this election is is no different in fact there's probably more than usual because of all the mail-ins there's Mm -hmm. more votes that like i said it's the highest turnout ever in history so jay tell us a little bit about the current current pending 
and closed court cases and litigation that the Trump administration is involved in right now. All right, good. I've I, Everyone I know has been asking me about this, so I'm happy we're going to get into it. So you've been hearing about litigation. I'm here to let you know what's going on and where, what the current status is of these lawsuits. We're going to go quick, though, so hang on. In Pennsylvania, the Trump campaign has had a few wins here, but none that we predict will have any effect on the result of the state. State court and separately the U.S. Supreme Court, led by Justice Alito, a.k.a. the justice who considers emergency requests from the area, ruled that local officials must segregate ballots that were received after Election Day pending action by the full high court. While he ordered the segregation, he did not grant the Republicans' request to stop counting them. Separately, a state judge ruled that election observers could stand slightly closer to election officials than previously allowed, six feet away to be exact. However, the request to stop vote counting over that issue was dismissed. But not before the administration's lawyers, under sharp questioning from Judge Paul S. Diamond, conceded that Trump did in fact, you're going to love this risk because you work with mm. a lot of lawyers, did in fact have, quote, a non-zero number of people in the room, to which <laughs> Judge Diamond appointed to the federal bench by George W. Bush retorted, I'm sorry, then what's your problem? They then (laughs) struck a deal for 60 observers from each party to be allowed inside. There is one more suit followed, claiming unfair and unequal treatment of Republicans in the state's election that litigation is ongoing. Recently, a state House committee revealed plans to hold hearings on the election, the first step to the full Republican legislature circumventing the vote and appointing its own slate of electors. In Michigan, the Trump campaign has focused its claims on an alleged lack of transparency in the vote counting process. I will allow the judges in these cases to speak for themselves. Quote, this court finds that while there are assertions made by the plaintiffs, that there is no evidence in support of those assertions, said Judge Timothy Kenney in denying a request to delay the state certification of the election results. And Judge Cynthia Stevens, in a denial to stop the vote count in the state, said, quote, On this factual record, I have no basis to find that there's a substantial likelihood of success on the merits as relates to this defendant, nor am I convinced that there is clear legal duty on the behalf of anyone who is properly before this court to manage this issue. These are two suits filed by voters against the city of Detroit and its elections commission alleging crimes on the part of election officials, and that is currently ongoing. Following that, the Trump campaign didn't file the full paperwork, including the lower court's order needed to appeal a case to the Michigan Court of Appeals. In Georgia, specifically Chatham County, the Trump campaign cited evidence that 53 late ballots may have been predated so they could be counted, and Judge James Bass dismissed the case in a one-sentence, eight-word ruling, which was, I am denying the request and dismissing the petition. He later went on to say in a written opinion, quote, the court finds that there is no evidence that the ballots referenced in the petition were received after 7 p.m. on Election Day, thereby making those ballots invalid. Additionally, there is no evidence that the Chatham County Board of Elections or the Chatham County Board of Registrars has failed to comply with the law. Georgia announced yesterday that they will embark on a full by-hand recount and will likely be doing this right up until the November 20th deadline. In Arizona, oh, Arizona, the hits just keep on coming. Yeah. You know, Riz, Arizona is starting to sound a lot like Florida, don't you think? It is, it is. Arizona's the new Florida. It really is. It's gonna be, soon there's going to be alligators there, too. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> yeah. So in Arizona, we have Sharpiegate, which alleged that voters had their ballots rejected because they used Sharpies to fill them out. Despite the director of the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and Infrastructure Security Agency and local authorities' correcting of the information and debunking Sharpiegate, the Republicans actually filed a lawsuit based on this information. They then dropped it and filed a separate suit alleging other voters in the state were incorrectly rejected. Finally, in Nevada... Local Republicans filed a lawsuit claiming irregularities plaguing the election in Clark County, the state's most populated county. And without evidence on hand to display, federal judge Andrew Gordon rejected the request. 
The campaign had earlier unsuccessfully sued to stop the processing of mail-in ballots in Clark County. And just yesterday, the Nevada Supreme Court dismissed an appeal by the Trump campaign to stop the counting of mail-in ballots. This leaves two active legal cases in Nevada relating to the election. One, a public records lawsuit in state court, which has set a November 20th deadline to turn over names, schedules, and party affiliations of more than 300 people who were hired to cast ballots. And the other, filed in federal court alleging ineligible voters were cast in the Las Vegas area, has a November 19th date for filings, but does not have a hearing date currently. So, a few takeaways. Number one, this is not the year 2000. Agree or disagree with the results of that election, there were obviously legitimate claims that elevated that case to the Supreme Court. That so far has not happened here. Number two, this is great. Some may not think so, but I believe that it is democracy in action. We have systems in place to check our systems, and they're happening right now in full view of the entire country and world. There's nothing better, in my opinion. And number three, when this is all done, there will be no doubt, no question, that the results are the results. Again, a result I think the American people want and deserve. So sit tight and have a bit of patience. America, this is your process, and you've earned it. Very good, Jay. That was almost like a buzzed history. It was like a buzz modern history. Yeah, buzz modern history. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Buzzed history from today. Yeah. But two things I want to add, you know, number one, the idea of a, of a rigged election uh, is so absurd on its face that these claims that, that Trump is making, if you're paying attention to his Twitter, which God, his Twitter has just become a cesspool of Twitter fact check marks. Oh my gosh. That's really <laughs> every, all it is when you look at every it. Everything's single blank, post blacked is just, out. Yeah. Right. So, um, but it, it's, it's a ridiculous contention because the idea that the Democrats would rig to put a octogenarian Joe Biden into <laughs> office, but then fail to rig the Senate and then lose I know. Uh, uh, House seats and state houses, legislatures, all so that an octogenarian Joe Biden can take office and have zero power to enact the will yeah. of the people is if you're gonna, absolutely if, absurd. If you're going to cheat on the test, you cheat the average, like what you average that year in class. Yeah. Uh, these seats that were lost, right? Mm. The yeah. polls did not say they, they would be lost. If, right. if, if you're going to rig something, rig it to, you know, whatever the polls are well, saying, at least. Well, exactly. And one could actually argue that it would have been better if they were going to choose to rig something, like do this widespread conspiracy to rig yeah. the election. Rig the Senate and the House so that Trump remains president, sure, but, we, but the Democrats have the Senate and the yeah. House. Right. That would have been just as good, if not sure. better. Right. Yeah. So no the other thing is that uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't slam the Democrats for their lack of strategy here as usual. Mm -hmm. I think the Democrats blow their strategy when it comes to this stuff all the time. Uh, They did their typical outrage thing. You have all the Democrats, you have set up pup tents outside of CNN (laughs) and are are on TV 24-7 talking about how outraged they are and Cory Booker and like, this is, this has never happened in America. This is Hitlerian and you know, this and that. And I think what they should, I would just love the Democrats one time to call their bluff because we know that voter fraud happens on both sides occasionally, right? So what if the Democrats just said, you know what, we should look into all of this. And in fact, we were supposed to win in the Senate. We were, not only did we lose the Senate, but we lost a lot of House seats that weren't supposed to happen. We're convinced that it's because you guys were engaged in fraud. What if they did that? The the Republicans would have their tails between their legs and they know that they're going to catch some Republican fraud as well. And therefore, but this goes back to the whole 
only criminality happens on the, this is the right wing contention that only whenever there's something criminal it's a democrat it's right. got to be yeah. every criminal in the world is democrat even the white collar criminals who are in jail for like tax evasion and insider trading they became democrats before they committed the crime everyone everyone at a trump rally who's wearing the MAGA gear, they've never even gotten a speeding ticket, Jay. They're, they're just the most law-abiding citizens on earth. And uh, that's what it comes at. So again, the, 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 the Democrats have a failed strategy here. Mm-hmm. Acting outrage just gives the Republicans what they want, which is to make the Democrats always seem crazy. And they seem to sort of be successful in that. Anything to add there, Jay? No, I think they obliged that well. I think we right. knew that this was going to happen when I think Trump was giving his first speech and he said, uh, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, Please do not stop counting ballots in the states that I'm winning. Please stop counting the ballots in the states that I'm not. Yes. I mean, it, it's so obvious my my six and a half year old son would understand that's ridiculous. Okay? Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's, it, it's an absolutely insane contention. But anyway, uh, let's move on. Uh, GOP members who have accepted Biden's win include the entire Bush family. Yep. Such menches, those bushes. Bless them. I, I'm, um, yes. I'm a bushy all the way. They're the best. There you go. Uh, Logan, uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland, Mitt Romney, yep. John Kasich, Will Hurd, Charlie Baker, Lisa Murkowski. So basically the usual suspects, the people, yeah, we, people we, 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 we would expect to Susan act responsibly. Susan included there, isn't she? Yes, yes. Yeah. I, think, I think so. I think yeah. so. The, the rest of the GOP is making a very interesting decision to back Trump here. So let's talk about that for a moment, Jay. Let's. Why, why do you think that is? Give me your take and I'll give you my take. So uh, it's it's interesting to break that down. Uh, and I believe that there are a number of mitigating factors here leading to, you know, as we said, Republicans not taking positions, congr- congratulating Biden for the win. The most obvious is that, as we mentioned earlier, there are two runoff races in Georgia that yeah. will quite literally decide if the Republicans wield any power at all in two of three branches of government. Now, that can't be understated here. Historically, in runoff elections, the base is who comes out to vote. And the base right now, as, a, as we unfortunately saw in the general, are at the moment Trump followers. So it yeah. seems they will need Trump's support to ensure victory in Georgia. The second reason is that people are just afraid of the guy. He's yeah. dangerous, he's volatile, and when he goes after someone, it's incessant, straight for the jugular, and he'll keep going until there's no longer a pulse. There isn't a person in Washington or the country who wants to be on his naughty list. It doesn't seem to be worth a career, especially considering the guy will be out of the White House come January. If he'll retain some sway over the party, it remains to be seen. I'm right. hoping that's not the case. I, you know, I, I've been upset at the direction of the party since the Tea Party yeah. started that takeover, uh, and hope mm-hmm. the Trump loss can be seen as a reset for the party to start talking about actual ideas. But uh, I digress. That is yeah. the the reason I believe that these people have not weighed in or have sort of backed him at this point. Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny. In my in my sort of analysis, I, I didn't even think about the runoff. That could very well be the runoffs that are happening in Georgia might very well be the reason they're holding back. Yeah. The other thing, though, that I've been thinking about, because the media has been reporting the last couple of days that Trump is starting to come to terms with the fact that he's lost, as I said before, and uh, he is going to um, imply that he's going to run again in 2024. Yeah, yeah, I've heard about this. this. This poses some serious, serious predicaments for the GOP because... He, like you said, he is the thought leader of, mm-hmm. of the Republican base at this yeah. point. So if Trump is not only saying I'm, I'm going to be back in 2024, but starts but starts, you know, doing rallies and yeah. starts promoting it, maybe starts this media company they're talking about, nice. then the GOP members who are going to come out against them 
are, are against him are going to get clobbered. We know yeah. that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Trump's going to have to run against someone. They're not just going to hand him the ticket, right? And maybe they will. Maybe they'll say Trump was so popular that we just, we won't even put anyone else up against him. Let's just give him the nomination in it's 2024. It's a very scary thought. It's scary. And, you know, it's something I, you know, I had predicted many times on the show when we talked to Fred Zeigman and, and, and a few other people that there would be this exodus from Trumpism mm-hmm. if, yeah. if Biden won decisively. And, and it turns out Biden did win decisively. This wasn't a close election. It wasn't no. a landslide, but he won decisively. But I now I'm starting to think there's not going to be that exodus, that, that Trumpism is going to stick around. Yeah, we, yeah. What we didn't consider was that a president can serve two uh, on consecutive terms. Yeah, yeah. We never considered that because no. we think, oh, he's so old and, you yeah, know, I don't know. Start, just... He wants to go make money. He wants to start his media company, blah, blah, right. blah. But maybe he loved it. He loved the power grab and he loved being the president of the United States just enough to do he's it all again. He's going to need money, too. Yeah, he's he, going to he need is. money uh, because he's going to be bankrupt. And the other thing they were talking about today is that there's talk that he might pardon himself on the way out. <laughs> well, I don't, <laughs> because... I don't actually, I want to see if that's legally possible. I've heard that too. The conspiracy yeah. theory I've heard is that uh, he resigns and Pence pardons him. Yeah, yes, yes. That, that I heard that same exact thing today yeah. too. It's interesting. Uh, if you were, if you were a Republican like, like Jay, who's a, a middle of the road moderate Republican who was looking forward to Trump being gone and Trumpism just sort of fading into the sunset, it, you might not have that happen in the no, next very four years. Scary yes. So who knows? Uh, only time will tell. Now, there is a right-wing talking point that has gained a lot of traction over the last week or two, and it's the idea that, well, you know, Democrats never accepted the election of Donald Trump, so it's funny that they now are demanding that we accept the election of Biden. Now, from an emotional standpoint, I try to be as objective as I possibly can. From an emotional standpoint, I do understand this talking point mm-hmm. because the fact is that hashtag not my president started the day Trump won in 2016 and hashtag the resistance started the next day. OK, that, that is just the truth. OK, yeah. but but the other truth is that Hillary Clinton conceded on the night of the election, gave her concession speech the sure. next day mm-hmm. and I know you people on the right are probably saying to yourselves right now, well, yeah, but then the FBI launched a years long, you know, years long investigation into phony Russia collusion. And it was all an attempted coup by the Democrats and blah, 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 blah. But it, but it's it, it's not really the same. And we haven't talked much on this show, Jay, about the Mueller investigation. Yeah. But that's not because at least to me, it's not because it didn't yield anything fruitful. First off, we had Donald Trump on camera saying. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you find Hillary Clinton's emails, okay? Mm -hmm. Then we had him on tape saying how much he loved WikiLeaks, which is run by Julian Assange, who is a Russian outfit guy, okay? So the idea that that an investigation into Trump's ties with Russia wasn't predicated upon anything substantial is nonsense. It was, okay? But we have to go over for a minute here that there is a distinct difference between criminality and corruption, okay? Those two are always conflated for some reason those two things okay Mm -hmm. now not all corruption is criminal in fact in terms of government a lot of corruption is 100 percent legal unfortunately yeah if you read the Mueller report as i have read cover to cover it is broken down into two parts part one outlines all of the corrupt ways in which the incoming trump administration was willing to accept help from foreign adversaries okay nothing explicitly illegal but deeply corrupt part two of the Mueller report outlines all the ways that trump himself tried to obstruct justice which again 
again, in the context of government and the position that Trump Trump held as president, was corrupt and immoral and perhaps even worthy of impeachment, but not criminal. My point is that the entire notion that the Russia investigation was fake or a coup attempt or anything else is nonsense. Just because Trump isn't in an orange jumpsuit right now doesn't mean he's not an an unethical loon bag. Okay. But I say all this to point out that the comparisons between Democrats not accepting the election in 16 and Republicans not accepting it now are deeply flawed. It's not the same thing. And Trump's refusal to concede does actually damage the country. I don't know if you heard this today, Jay, but there was a report about how in 9-11, the 9-11 commission Mm -hmm. determined that at least in part, one of the thing, the devastating things that that added to the potential for 9/11 was that very slow transition from the Clinton administration to the Bush administration because because of Bush v. Gore and everything that happened mm-hmm. in Florida. It took a long time. By Trump holding up the transition, it actually does potentially put America in an unsafe position here with with some of our foreign adversaries. No, I, I agree. I do I do think there's a fix to that because I because I do mm-hmm. like the fact that he he has the right to uh, play out some of these legal processes. However, he is denying the Biden administration briefings and yep. uh, certain things. I mean, that being said, you know, you know when the last time he had a briefing was the president? <laughs> Tell me. It was the day before he got COVID. He has oh, not had go. a briefing since that day. At least it hasn't mm. been on his public schedule. So he's not getting a minor. Yeah. Point right. is, is that he is denying certain things to the Biden administration that wouldn't hurt anyone if even if the legal things all went through and he was named president again, it doesn't hurt anyone that Biden would have gotten these briefings during this time. Only yeah. that in the case of a, of a transition that Biden would be ready to go. Right. I'm good with these processes playing out and him yeah. not conceding, but I'm not OK with him not at least starting the process for a transition and having these briefings. Right. And you basically just took the words right out of my mouth, because the last thing I was going to say was that it is perfectly within First of all, your legal rights as a citizen to never officially accept Biden as your president. It's a free country. You can do what you want. It's also, with that said, perfectly acceptable for the GOP to investigate all allegations of voter fraud. Why not? It's it's, it's, there's nothing illegal about it. It's not the end of the world. Let I think it's going to be better in the end because it will unequivocally prove that this election would not have been changed with it. Right. And here's the bottom line. Okay. There is a long history of the losing party's constituents not accepting the results of an election in this country. It's 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 one of the many things on this show that we've talked about that's nothing new. You know, the the clock didn't start ticking with Donald Trump as much as you want to believe it did. It's not like Trump came on the scene and everything was crazy. It, things have been crazy in politics for a long time. Mm-hmm. To cite some data here, this is according to Gallup polling data. Uh, in October of this year, you'll find this funny. In October of this year. Only 48% of Democrats thought the election was going to be free and fair. That's this election, right? Uh, After the election, 90% of Democrats (laughs) think the election was free and fair. That's classic. Yes, yeah. It jumped jumped like 42 points there. (laughs) There you go. But let's go back to 2016, okay? Before the election, 75% of Democrats said the election would be free and fair. After the election, when Trump won, 28% of Democrats said the election was free and fair. Okay? And the same percentages basically hold true for both elections that W won, mm-hmm. an outsized number of Republicans also lost faith in the election process when 
Bill Clinton beat out Bush one, but right. George H.W. Bush mm-hmm. in 92. The bottom line here is that when you got when, when your guy loses, you think it's rigged. You're all it's sore, as, you're it, all sore losers. Is right. what we're it's saying. A, exactly. It's as American as apple pie. And I really wish it wasn't. It hasn't I been agree. that way since Reagan, though. Yeah. Reagan won like what? 48 state or 49 states that or something. Insane. Yeah. It, it, right. If you, if you want to go Google Reagan, Reagan victory to just look yeah. at that map, it's bonkers. Right. But since then, it hasn't been like that, and both sides get pissed off when their guy doesn't win, and both sides, you know, indulge in conspiracy theories and all the rest. Yep. Anyway, moving on, uh, what's happening right now with Trump and the Republicans acting like whiny little babies is unethical and childish and potentially harmful on low levels, as we talked about, but it's not a constitutional crisis. No. And the media walking around with their hair on fire over this is counterproductive as usual. You know, the hair on fire guy doesn't work when the hair is always on fire. It's, you know, a, it's, it's like, the kid who cried wolf. He's going to get eaten because no one believes him. Right. It's like your next door neighbor always has his hair on fire, right? And eventually you've seen him with his hair on fire all the time. You're like, ah, hey, it's just crazy Joe with his hair on fire, right? And <laughs> then your relative, doing that. Right, your relatives come over and they're like, whoa, dude, that guy's got his hair on fire. Like, oh, no, he always has his hair on fire. That's You're actually lessening the impact that you can have by always saying everything's a constitutional crisis everything's everything is out of control so case in point there was a ton of coverage uh and uh, a ton of outrage over a presser that secretary of state mike bobpeo gave a couple days ago where he says there's there's going to be a smooth transition to a second trump term (laughs) now you wouldn't you guys won't be able to see his face here when I play this clip, but he clearly grins and he laughs. That's typically in America what we call a joke, okay? And then and then he basically goes on to say that everything's going to be fine. We have the processes in place. This is what that sounded like. Pompeo, go. Uh, is the State Department currently preparing to engage with the Biden transition team? And if not, at what point does a delay hamper a smooth transition or pose a risk to national security? There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. All right, we're, we're ready. The, the world is watching what's taking place here. We're going to count all the votes. When the process is complete, there'll be electors selected. There's a process. The Constitution lays it out pretty clearly. The world should have every confidence that the transition necessary to make sure that the State Department is functional today, successful today, and successful with the president who's in office on January 20th, a minute afternoon will also be successful. Yeah, so this is America, Riz. We don't tell jokes here anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and the amount of oxygen the media, I think this was yesterday, was gave to this. Cycle. It was a full day of just yeah. how dare he kind of, you know. So is Pompeo a jerk? Yes. It, I mean, is it perhaps an an untimely, inappropriate yes. joke given time. the circumstances? He's, yes, of course, right? He's just a big jerk. Right. Should he have told a joke like that in that moment? No. But was it a joke? Yes. Yes. Right. (laughs) And it's a further example of how this kind of media hysteria makes at least half the country just short sort of shake their heads and be like, how am I supposed to take these people seriously? Yeah. It's the same principle with the racism thing we were talking about earlier. When you act alarmed and outraged over every single thing, when there is something to actually be alarmed and outraged over, people will be less inclined to listen to you. Mm -hmm. And I think I think COVID is a good example of that. You know, there actually was something to be alarmed and outraged over here. But so many people were just like, I'm not taking these people seriously. Everything they say is crazy. And that that, it becomes a danger to to the American people and the electorate. Exactly. So calm the 
down. And that is where the inter, uh, shameless self-promotion, the intermediary, our coming <laughs> exactly. media venture is going to come in because we are not going to do that. That's right. We are going to take a measured approach to all of these things. And when there's something to be alarmed at, we're going to show you a, a, alarm. And yeah. then you'll be like, oh, if these guys are alarmed, there really is something to be alarmed about. Okay? Exactly. Now, Mitch McConnell also wouldn't say the term president-elect about Biden, as we talked about before, but he did also ensure a smooth transition of power. And Biden himself, and this is the most important part, Jay, Biden himself acted more calmly and rational than anyone in the media or any of his Democratic counterparts when mm-hmm. he was asked about yeah. this. He was, he was being goaded by the press to get angry about what the Republicans are doing here and what Pompeo said about the smooth transition to Trump's second term. And his response was great. And it made me even more excited about the fact that this guy is going to be president. Here's what that sounded like. Biden. We are already beginning the transition. We're well underway. And uh, the ability uh, for uh, the administration in any way by failure to recognize this our win uh, does not... Uh, change the dynamic at all and what we're able to do. We've announced yesterday, as you know, the health group that we put together today. We're going to be going moving along in a, in a consistent manner, putting together our administration, the White House, and reviewing who we're going to pick for the cabinet positions. And nothing's going to stop that. And, uh, and so I'm confident that uh, the fact that they're not willing to acknowledge we won at this point is uh, not of much consequence in our planning and what we're able to do between now and January 20th. Whenever he talks, uh, I could fall asleep, and I love I know. it. I just <laughs> me love too. it. Slow and calm and just not freaking out. And that's Biden saying, calm the F down here. Nothing is dude. Come on. You're being very undude. There are a bunch of amateurs. Uh, <laughs> Oh, and by the way, I got this, guys, so calm down, right? Okay, so that's the whole thing. Now, anyway, let's move on from that. Uh, Biden gave his first speech as presumptive president-elect, okay? Mm -hmm. And it was filled with some really great stuff about unity and coming together and looking at each other as Americans rather than enemies. It was a great speech, Mm -hmm. and I encourage everyone to go listen to it. We're not going to break the whole thing down because there's not enough time. With that said, there's one thing. I, you know, People might say, oh, you're focusing on the negative here, Riz. But there's one thing he said that I personally would love to see less of going forward, and that is what this sounded like. Biden. And especially for those moments when this campaign was at its lowest ebb, the African-American community stood up again for me. You've always had my back, and I'll have yours. Now, I understand how this would seem completely innocuous to most people, and I understand that the African-American community is a very important voting block for the Democrats. But this is my true belief, okay? Like I said, in this season, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it Let all it out loose. there. Let's go. Right? I truly believe that the first step in healing some of the divisions in this country is to stop putting everyone into racial groups yeah. in this country and to really get to a place where we are treating everyone as individuals. And I know that's a conservative concept, but it's one that I agree with. You know, call me a crazy right winger. I just I agree with that. OK. <laughs> and if Trump agree. had mm-hmm. if Trump, here's the thing. If Trump had said the same thing about white Americans having his back Ooh. always. Yeah. Right. If he had said, you white people, you always love me. You always have my back. Right. Yeah. It would have been racist. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. For and sure. I 
Right. And I likewise think it's becoming increasingly clear that putting individuals into groups and setting up certain expectations for those groups, whether it be how they're expected to vote or how they're expected to feel about government policy, is counterproductive to American ideals. It's segregationist is really yeah. what it is. It is. It, it, in, in, in a way, it is. Absolutely. And if Biden truly wants to heal this country and bring us together, identity politics in general mm -hmm. has, has to, to be the first thing to get thrown in a dumpster. Amen. It has to. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of people on the left who disagree strongly about this and think your identity is what has it makes the Democratic Party, but it shouldn't be. Yeah. We need to start thinking about everyone individually. So less of that would be good. With that said, it was still fairly innocuous. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk for a minute about the right wing reaction to this speech that Biden gave. Now, of course, most of the right wing media haven't accepted Biden as president-elect yet, so that was the first thing they pointed out. But beyond that, I heard a lot of right-wing pundits panning the speech because they simply don't believe that Biden has any intention on bringing the country together. You know, it's the whole, you guys have been calling anyone who voted for Trump a racist, sexist, bigoted, homophobe for four years, and now you want unity? Uh, you know, so I think Biden has a very steep hill to climb here because the right is not going to take his words at face value. It has to come with deliberate action on his part to show that he is truly willing to compromise and get us out of this sort of partisan bubble that we've been in for so long. Now, do you agree, Jay? Yeah, I completely agree. He's going to have to put something behind what he's saying uh, and, and show us something, and that's fine. Right. So, you, you know, he can't just get out there and say, I'm going to reach across the aisle, I'm going to do this. He really has to, has to prove it. I think one of the ways he can do that is by... Uh, diminishing the impact that the so-called progressive wing, this really yes. ultra progressive wing mm -hmm. of the Democratic Party is. So let's move on to that. So, okay. you know, that brings us to the war that's happening right now inside the Democratic Party. So as we mentioned before, the Democrats got hammered in their House races and Senate races. There was a post-election sort of family meeting, I guess, if you will, mm -hmm. among Democratic Congress people. Uh, that apparently became very emotional and people were yelling at each other and pointing fingers. And it really came down to a bunch of centrist Democrats blaming the progressive AOC Bernie wing of their caucus for their losses that they endured during this election. Uh, the audio of this phone call leaked. It's on YouTube. You can listen to it. It showed a very fractured Democratic caucus. According to The Hill, uh, moderate House Democrats lashed out at their liberal colleagues Thursday using a marathon caucus-wide conference call to bash progressives for advancing an agenda that the centrists said cost the party a number of seats in Tuesday's election. An impassioned uh, representative, Abigail Spamberger, who squeaked to victory in central Virginia, took liberals to task for promoting the policy of redirecting funds away from the police departments, an idea that took off following the death of George Floyd in May, and that Republicans used on the campaign trail to hammer Democrats with charges of nurturing crime. Spamberger called the Democrats' campaign strategy a failure. Mm -hmm. She went on to say, and we need to stop using the word socialist or socialism ever again, because while people think it doesn't matter, it does matter, and we lost good members because of that. Slow clap for Abigail Spamberger. Amen. Yeah. Hey. Right. Amen. Now, here's the problem, Jay, and this is what I, I worry about, is that 
the I've already heard the narrative from this whole situation from that AOC wing, and it's the same narrative that they took in 2016 when Hillary lost, which yeah. is they doubled down. Yeah. And they said the reason you lost is because you didn't embrace this yeah. more progressive liberal, crazy liberal agenda. Yeah, and according to AOC, it's also they didn't use the Internet enough. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But a lot of people in 2016 were saying that if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee and the and the Democrats hadn't hadn't, you know, kneecapped him, he would have won. And that's what the country actually wanted. Now, in 2016, because both candidates were so unpopular, who knows, maybe he would have won. But the idea that the Democrats are losing because they're not being progressive enough. Enough, I know. Is is silly. It, well, it's, it, it's the, belied the by, the, pan by, the, f- yeah. by the facts. Exactly as, you, as right. you're saying, the data doesn't pan that out. It's belied by the fact yeah. of the results of this election. Exactly. Exactly. Honestly, AOC spazzing out and taking to Twitter sounds like someone else I know, just with better vocabulary. Exactly, a smarter version of somebody else we know. Yeah. 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 I think so. I think Biden has has a tough road ahead of him, but he has to. He has to uh, tamp down this the these these people in his caucus that are doing damage to the party. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know what we're finding out now to go back to 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 race and 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 all of that is that you know black people and his, the Hispanic community and the Cuban community and the Asian American community they're not so fond of socialism either. That's it right. turns out if you've lived under socialism, yeah, you don't like you it really, so much. Right. You really don't like it. Yeah. I mean, so, that's with the Cuban vote in Florida. I mean, that's they don't want to live under another socialist dictator. Right. Right. So, you know, I think um, that's something that we have to keep thinking about. I, I'm glad that America decided that the rhetoric coming from the left isn't something they want. We both agree. have agreed many times here that socialism is bad. Defunding yep. the police was bad marketing. And while at the moment it's just the squad and Bernie kicking and screaming, if it isn't quelled, as you said, it could grow over time. Mm -hmm. And these people need to know. And I think Biden is the person to tell them this. Pelosi has done it before and needs to be that person again. That we are not and will never be a socialist country because reform is one thing. Government programs are one thing. But socialism, anti-Semitism that calls Mm -hmm. for the like are not and ever should be American ideals. So we'll see what happens. We agree on here. And that's why we're down the middle. The big question, Jay, is can Biden bring the country together? Can yeah. he actually do this? So we already addressed the Biden versus the Bernie bro caucus and the, uh, you know, the, the far progressive, what he has to do with that. He has to make decisive decisions that sort mm-hmm. of tamp down that wing and don't give them too much power. I think Nancy Pelosi made a fatal error in posing on the cover of Rolling Stone with, yeah. those, with those people. It wasn't a good idea for her or for her party. Biden's relationship with Mitch McConnell is interesting because I love this. I love this. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah o- Obama had a very contentious relationship with McConnell. Uh, Biden, on the other hand, has a very good relationship with McConnell. They're friendly. Um, they've known each other a long time. They're they like friends with each other outside of work. They're yes, like they've worked friends. with each other. Yeah. They're friend friends. Now, I don't put anything past McConnell. He is sure. a political actor. Yep. But maybe Biden is the guy to say. You know, to do what Obama couldn't do, Mm because I know Obama was very he always said the most frustrating part of his presidency was that he couldn't get bipartisan stuff done. You know, maybe Biden is the guy to to, you know, say, okay, I know you guys don't like the Affordable Care Act. Let's work together and figure out what we can do. do Right. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe he is, you know, so so let's not um, count that out, because I think I think that that could be a strong possibility. We'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. The next thing is the revenge cycle. 
and how we sort of break this. I want to talk about this for a second, Jay. Because, yeah, it's been going on for quite you know, a while. It's been going on for a while. And, you know, what I'm talking about when I talk about the revenge cycle is I'm talking about like, you know, people, a new administration gets into office and the current administration takes revenge out on the on the last administration. Undo all executive orders. Not, just... not even just that, but even talking about criminal revenge. You know, you oh, heard yeah. it, it was a big yeah. part of, of, of Trump's. Uh, yeah. uh-huh. Right. It was a big part of Trump's campaign in 2016. Mm-hmm. He was going to lock up Hillary Clinton and yeah. all the Democrats that were uh, supposedly complicit in right. all lock her, her up was a chance. Right. Lock her up was the thing. Mm-hmm. And now you're seeing the Democrats. Democrats do a similar, some Democrats do a similar yeah. thing. There was a list that was put out of all the people by some Democratic staffer of all the people yeah, that, mm-hmm. that worked in the Trump administration to make sure that none of them get jobs again yeah. in D.C. or or elsewhere for yeah. what they've done to the country. You know, now, I mean, you know who I, led this charge, by the way, is AOC. Who's that? Yeah, of course. She's called now, for all their heads. Yeah. Now, I do... <laughs> You know how much I hate Trump. Sure, and, of course. And you know how emotional I've been about mm-hmm. the damage he's done to this yeah. country. So I do understand the emotional part of, of that. Course. Like, yeah. I want all these people to pay. But mm-hmm. how do we... So, so I guess the question for you, Jay, is how do you break that cycle and not do the revenge thing but move on and sort of put everything behind you? Because that's a really hard thing to do, especially after Trump. I'll tell you how yeah. and I have an answer. First of all, it, it goes without saying, if someone has done something illegal, they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent right. of the law. Period. Mm-hmm. End of story. Yeah. However, there is a saying, I'm sure most people know it already, success is the best revenge. And I think that's, that's the case here. Put all of this crap behind you and have a, a great administration, fix the problems, get people to understand that your party and your administration are the reason why the country is now doing well, the reason that the problems are fixed. And you will have four more years of this with your administration. You will have uh, who knows how many more years with your party in power because you have fixed this cycle that you're describing here. I think that that's right. the best way to do this. Be the adult in the room. We've called for this many, many times. I think this yeah. is a great place where people could do, could could model yeah. that. It takes both sides to do that. And I does. really do hope it happens. Yeah. Uh, but this whole like lock her up, lock him up thing, it's banana republic bullshit. It and is. it really is what yeah. happens in third world countries when new administrations come in and everyone gets jailed in That's the last right. administration or killed. That's a great point. Or, That's exactly right. right. It, it, it is not the kind of country we want to have. Even if you think that Donald Trump has done criminal, you know, let's let's investigate. Let, have the investigators do all that. Yes. Have the outside parties. But in government, we have to get out of this cycle of you know, we are going to make that last administration pay. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's not good for the country. Yeah. Uh, so in closing on this this little uh, topic here, uh, what do I expect personally from the Biden administration? I expect moderation. I really do. Yeah. And I will, uh, I'll tell you honestly, uh, this season and beyond, I will be completely honest. Uh, I'm not going to be partisan. So if Biden is doing things that I don't think is good for the country, if he's, you know, scrapping executive orders uh, that Trump put in place just to do it or mm-hmm. reversing things that I don't think are are worthwhile just to be partisan or uh, placating his uh, or I shouldn't say placating or indulging the fantasies of the more liberal base. I'm going to call him on that. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. Now, I will also say that I am 
more and more pushing in a libertarian direction. I am no longer a a, a registered Democrat. I'm yeah. a registered independent. For all the reasons I laid out in our last episode about what a liberal against leftism is, I think a lot of those things fit into the category of libertarianism. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Wear I'm not a card. Though. Right, is that? Wear your seatbelt. I'm not a card-carrying libertarian, but I would really like to see that this country go in more of that direction mm-hmm. where it basically, we are going in more of a conservative direction in terms of the role of the government, but more of a liberal direction in terms of basic constitutional freedoms that I laid out in, you know, in getting out of the religious freedom realm, Mm -hmm. which I don't think is constitutional. Um, Or or what I meant to say there is, is using your religion to cram down your beliefs on the rest of the country. What the religious right did. I I would replace that with, with, with morality. I don't think you, I think even like, let, let's get the religious people off the hook here. Let me, if I could sort of translate that for you, I think you don't want morality legislated. Yes. Yes. I think that's a better way to put it. Exactly. Right. Right. That's that's a very good way. And I think that's a very libertarian concept. It is. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Um, Right. So uh, with that said, for all those who don't know Justin Amash, he is my current favorite person in Congress. Yeah. He is a a, a libertarian. He is the one person with uh, he doesn't have an R or a D next to his name. He's an independent. But he did not sully himself during the entire Trump administration. He was the only one uh, on the right, I guess you could say, if he's on the right, that voted for impeachment. Mm-hmm. He, you know, uh, along with Mitt Romney, that is. Rit Romney. Yeah. As he'll <laughs> now be known on this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, look him up. Uh, he's a good Twitter follower. He talks a lot about constitutional issues. He congratulated Biden on the win, and he mm-hmm. said, I'm going to uh, be a check and balance for the Biden administration, which I think is good. Right. Yeah, I think so that. far he's doing all the right things, and he would be a great future for America, someone to look out for. He's young. He's, uh, he's exciting to me. Jay, what do you expect from the Biden administration? So first and foremost, I, and in the immediate, I expect this pandemic to be handled on a federal level mm. with clear communication that takes both the economy and our health into consideration and decides on a plan that mandates what is necessary in order to get past this crisis, like masks, for example. That's the yeah. emergency. That's what they need to deal with first. But overall, I expect this administration to act as an administration that was elected as the people have chosen. We've said it earlier, with a Republican right. majority likely in the Senate and a Democrat-led House. That means that Washington needs to operate not as it has the past 10 to 15 years with executive orders and testing ways to swerve around Congress, but as it did prior to that, by deal-making, union, by bringing both sides together. And I believe that this president is supremely equipped to do so. They'll have to negotiate. They'll have to accept small victories and incremental, moderate change. And that's why I love how this is all setting up. As I said in the season finale, I believe our system was designed for a bit of gridlock so that if, if there isn't a clear mandate for change and one party doesn't control the lot, both parties have to meet in the middle and work out a compromise so that things advance a little bit at a time. And I honestly think that's where we're at our best. That's when we're at our best as a nation. And I think Joe Biden can absolutely be that man for the job. He's he's a congressional diplomat. As we said, he's close friends with Mitch McConnell. He's done this for a living for a very long time. I suspect that I'll not be agreeing with everything the administration focus on, focuses on, maybe their policy on Israel, maybe some regulatory issues, maybe a tax plan, who knows. But I do know that I can expect respect for the office, for our system, for our country, for its people. And that, for me, right now, sounds very excellent. Excellent. Very good job there. I agree with all that. And then lastly, you know, what, what you guys can expect from down the middle, now that we are, uh, you know, on the, on, on the cusp of a new administration, yeah. is that 
Jay and I will maintain our personal ideological stances on everything. We are not going to act partisanly. We will call out both sides when we think they are wrong. And that is the entire sort of essence of Down the Middle. Uh, We are an all-partisan platform that will allow points of view from right, left, and center, far left, far right. We want it all. We want people to speak up and to be able to have uh, their own safe space here to uh, express ideas that perhaps aren't uh, widely accepted by the intelligentsia or by mainstream media or whatever. So um, yeah, that's that's how we're going to go forward. Okay, so finally for you today, we did want to talk a little bit about COVID because it is it is just ramping up out there. It is getting very scary and dangerous in a lot of cities. Uh, we just, I just heard today, Jay, that the city of Chicago is going to close down. down starting Monday. Yeah, it's getting scary. It's getting real scary. Yeah, it's getting worse than it's ever been, which is terrible. It's worse than it's ever been. Which, by the way, the experts predicted because it's colder. We're all inside more. People are have uh, quarantine fatigue, as they say. We're getting tired of this nonsense. It's just, it's really hard. People want to be with their families over Thanksgiving. We just want to tell everyone to wear a freaking mask, be as safe as humanly possible. Uh, I was supposed to go away for Thanksgiving. We canceled our trip. We're going to stay here and just do something here. With that said, there is some good news, though, okay? And the good news is that death rates are way down, even though case count is high. So they're learning how to treat treat this disease, Mm -hmm. right? If you are under 60 years old and you don't have pre-existing conditions, the chances of you dying now are very, very, very low. You could still get very sick. We don't know the long term i was gonna say uh, that that's the one thing yeah. that's scary about this thing is mm-hmm. you know there are all kinds of people are talking about infertility in men they're p- talking about mental uh issues that are that are ongoing there's no telling what the long-term uh issues would be you still don't want to get it it doesn't mean just because people are are are, are not dying that you want to go out and and not wear a mask or not socially right. distance it's very right. important you do these things you don't know what the long-term yep. implications of this virus could be Exactly. And the other really piece of of good news here, uh, it's actually incredible news, is that there's a potential vaccine uh, that will finally end this nightmare, uh, hopefully very shortly. I'm actually I'm in line for it right now. You can't tell, but I'm out. I'm outside (laughs) Pfizer right now. My PJ's in a tent. I'm waiting. Right. So if you haven't heard the news, uh, Pfizer has developed a vaccine that they say is 90 percent effective, which is insane, by the way, the, 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 the flu shot that people get every year i've heard that uh it's like 23 percent it's that number is 23 percent versus the 90 percent effective rate for yeah i mean it it varies every year but to give you a better a better i think a better example is is the um measles uh rubella mumps Mm -hmm. shot is like 80% 80% effective. Yeah. So mm-hmm. 90 would wipe out the virus because uh, you'd have basically one in 10 people who could get it. The virus couldn't survive that way. It would fizzle out. Um, yeah. So this would be a cure and it would be an incredible, incredible thing. So we should all celebrate the fact that that is happening. Yeah, it do is a little a dance though. Don't go outside. Science. Do a little dance. Yeah, exactly. Science. Exactly. Well, I'll get to celebration in a second. Yeah. Uh, it is, but it's a victory for humanity. It's certainly a victory for science. It, um, it is. And Jay, it is a victory for capitalism. Yay, Yay capitalism. capitalism. Remember, that was created here with money. Money is good. It buys lots of things, including uh, you know, Vaccines. cures for very, very bad, deadly diseases. So yes, we we're like very it. happy about that, mm-hmm. right? But with that said, uh, I want to say one more thing. Um, that Joe Biden could have done better with this yes. whole thing. Mm-hmm. The day he was uh, presumed to be president, I guess this was Saturday, was Saturday when they yeah. 
they finally announced it. Mm -hmm. Uh, People took to the streets and started partying. I've been very clear on the show, very consistent, that we have to be consistent, especially those of us on the left with our messaging. Okay. Uh, It seems like we, you know, that, that, that was the wrong thing to do. I think Joe Biden could have gone out and said like, everyone, I know you're excited. Celebrate in your home. Mm -hmm. Celebrate. Now, a lot of people were wearing masks and being safe, but I saw plenty of video and picture of people not doing that. Very, very large numbers. And if you're going to scream about a Trump rally, then you're (laughs) not going to scream about a Black Lives Matter protest or about a Biden celebration party. Mm -hmm. Then you, you, like, no one's going to take you seriously. Exactly. And contrary to what you might believe, this virus is not woke. The virus is not itself woke. <laughs> Does not it doesn't care. spare it doesn't spare racial grievance parties no, and, and go after everyone else. I wish it just went after white supremacists, but it doesn't do that. It goes after everyone. So be careful. Um and then finally to end this in on some good news, uh you know, Biden has already put a commission together uh filled with scientists and people that believe in the virus and believe in 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 science and and the medical community. So I think that's a really good thing. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, wow, a government task force, that's all we need. But, you know, anything we could do to sort of get people on the right track here and get rid of this sort of uh, stigma that everything that comes out of the government is fake or bad or has some kind of sinister purpose is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, how about our, our public officials are not health experts? They need to bring in a team Mm -hmm. of experts to brief them, to brief the country, to tell them what the best plan is for the country, because they do need to take into consideration. We are a massive country with a lot of people. We have Mm -hmm. a very, very large economy and we have a lot of people who, you know, are are sick, old, uh, you know, not taking the virus seriously, whatever that is. This task force of experts needs to advise our government well, and that's why they get brought in. Yep. Totally it's not doctor in chief. It's not doctor in chief. No, no. Although there are a few doctors in Congress. That's but, true. Uh, anyway, that's about it for you guys. I'm tired of talking about this. I, I it just I want to put this election behind me and just move on. But Please. I don't think we're going to be able to do that. I think by next week, there will be even more craziness that Trump has said and tweeted that we're going to have to talk about. Um, yeah. Who knows? He might have to be dragged out by the National Guard. I, I don't see. know, Jay. Yeah. Yeah. We we'll will see. see. But anyway, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We took you through a lot. Uh, we analyzed some numbers. We gave you some of our thoughts and feedback on what we think is going on and what we think the mandate of this country is with this election. So um, stay tuned. We're going to have a fun season, aren't we, Jay? We certainly are. And as we always, you know what? I'm, I'm done saying it. America, we know you're going to do crazy things. We'll, we'll talk about it next week. (laughs) You're going to do something crazy in the meantime, play us out announcer. It was good to see you guys. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now.